You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Romans 12 tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This happens through God's word, but the, the key there is that we already have a preset way of thinking. And that is to be conformed to this world. All right. And one of the ways that that comes through is by a way that was expressed by one of my, uh, classmates whenever I was in like, it was, it was all of high school. I remember her saying this. We would have conversations about whether something was right or whether something was true. And she would lose the argument oftentimes. I'm not going to say every time. That just sounds prideful, but she would often lose the argument. And then this is her, how she would, uh, end it. She would say, well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. All right. So that sounds kind of silly, but ultimately we live in a very individualistic society. You might have your truth. Your truth looks different than my truth. We all are kind of just doing our own thing and we're individuals who get to decide our own fate uh, and we decide what we want to do. And it might not be the, look the same as everybody else. One really important aspect about the church is that the church is the bride of Christ. And the church is a collection of people. You are not the church. One person is not the church. We together are the church. It fights against the spirit of the age. It fights against what we know and what we are preset to think. So reading the Bible often becomes a a byproduct of that. We think that reading the Bible is something that we need to do alone and it's just us and God. But we're called to read the Bible together. Read the Bible in community. That's what we're going to talk about. So I want to start out by giving you one foolproof way to fail at reading the Bible. Right? Because you all came here wondering how you could do that. How can you fail at reading the Bible? This is it. All right? Are you ready? Might want to take notes. I don't know. Um, Only read alone and never talk about it with other people. This is just your personal time. This is your personal Bible study. And honestly, it's an invasion of privacy to let anybody in on your personal time. That is a sure way to fail at reading your Bible. Reading your Bible is not meant to be something that is only done in your private time. It's meant to be something that takes place in the church with the community of believers that God has blessed you with. But reading the Bible can happen for one of two reasons. It can happen because you feel like reading the Bible. Or it can happen because you feel like you should read the Bible. So one of those is intrinsic, one of those is extrinsic. Here's an example of what that looks like. I'm not married, but I've been reading a lot of marriage books because I'm getting married March 21st. It's coming up really soon. So we've been, Cherish and I have read some books together. One that I've recently been reading is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And it is a wonderful book on marriage. I would highly suggest it. Um, although I've, I don't know anything about marriage because I'm not married. But I have been reading about it, so I feel like I know something about it, although I've never experienced it. But... Um, He talks about how marriage is a covenant, right? Um, And largely the idea of a covenant relationship has passed 
from our society in the West. Um, we, we think of things in very individualistic terms. Um, but this, this idea of a covenant relationship has not passed in one relationship that we have. And that is the relationship of parents to children. We practice a covenant relationship with parents and children. All right, and this is what that looks like. A covenant means that it's not based on feelings, but on commitment. Right? Whenever you have a child, you are committed to that child whether or not they love you. Whenever you have a child, you care for that child whether or not they care for you. Right? So you could get to a point where that child's 16 and they're like, I hate you. But you're still going to love that child. Even if you don't feel it in that moment, you still are committed to the good of your child, right? It's a covenant relationship. It's not based on how the child feels towards you. It's based on your commitment to your children. Marriage is meant to be this exact same way. Marriage is not based on you feeling loved. And like, if I feel loved, then I'm going to show love. I'm going to do what I need to if she's doing or he's doing what they need to do, right? If it were that way, there would not be very much love shown in a relationship because at any given point, we know that someone is failing the other person, right? In marriage, you're not always gushing with feelings for the other person. You're not always just feel, you're not feeling love. So there's this secondary motivation that is the reason why you show love. And that's because you're married. Because you've entered into the covenant of marriage. Now, you don't want to always be motivated by this secondary motivation, right? You don't always want to just feel like, I have to do this because I'm married. You want to feel like you love that person. But if you never act like you love that person, then you're never going to feel like you love that person. So if you only act like you love someone whenever you feel it and they feel it, then you're probably not going to love very, love each other very often. You're not going to show love toward one another very often. But if you act and you show loved love even whenever you don't feel it, then eventually it's going to click. Even at times whenever it wasn't clicking before, it's going to click because you are showing love and the other person will reciprocate, right? So it's important that no matter what your feelings are, you are committed. But sometimes those secondary motivations can bring us back to the real reason why you're married, which is because you love each other, right? So sometimes we need those secondary motivations. In the same way, whenever we're reading the Bible, it would be super ideal if we just felt like knowing God more and under, growing in his grace and understanding the Bible more all the time. If we just felt like reading the Bible all the time. But if you've been a Christian for long, you know that you don't always feel like reading the Bible all the time, right? I had a friend who he would, um, whenever he didn't feel like reading the Bible, he felt like it was fake and he didn't want to do it. He would, he'd say, I, I just don't feel close to God right now, so I'm not reading the Bible. It just feels phony. It doesn't feel like a real thing. But in the same way that a marriage will fail if that's the way that you act. A marriage will fail if you are not committed to showing love, even at times whenever you don't feel loving, even whenever you don't feel the love. Your relationship with God is going to kind of get on the back burner. If you aren't committed 
to reading scripture, even whenever you don't feel like reading scripture. And one of the ways that this really happens in a way that's very sustainable is in the church, you are committed to reading the Bible with other people. If you're reading the Bible with other people, you know what happens? They ask you where you're reading. Or they ask you, did you read this past week? And then you have to answer, I didn't read the Bible this past week. And you know, there's, there's a little bit of panic that sets in whenever they ask that question, and then you're like, um, I, I read a verse, I think, on Tuesday. Um, but it, it creates these secondary motivations. Now, do you always want to be motivated, motivated by the fact that you have to read the Bible because you don't want to let that person down? No. You want to be motivated by love for God, but you're only going to be motivated by love for God whenever you're already getting in the Word. So times, sometimes we need the secondary motivations to push us into the primary motivation of love for God. So reading in community helps us do that. So reading with others in the church is a great way to ensure that you will feel like reading. It stokes the flames of your desire for God. But you might be saying, isn't that why I'm at church? I'm sitting in the Sunday service right now. We're under God's word. We're together. Why would I need to do any more than that? Just like if you were trying to become a good guitar player, you were, you were like, you know, I've never played guitar before in my life, but I want to play like Derek or Ryan or Rick or Don. And you're like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to commit to one hour out of every week to play the guitar. You're, you're going to make some very, very slow progress, maybe no progress, if you do one hour. One out of 168 hours a week, right? If you've ever taken guitar lessons or any music lessons, you know that they want you to do what? Practice every day. I hated that whenever I was a kid. I hated it so much. Um, But you're not going to get better if you commit to one out of 168 hours. In the same way, you can't expect to come to church for one out of 168 hours and be around other people, and then that's going to change everything in your life. Whenever you come together... You are hearing the gospel, you're singing the gospel, you're seeing the gospel in communion, and you're praying the gospel, right? And it's a beautiful, wonderful time, but then the gospel infects all of your life, and it changes you from the inside out, and then we are called to love our neighbor, we are called to love our enemy. It's supposed to change all of our relationships, and we're not going to change everything if we're committing one out of 168 hours a week. So that's why it's important that we need to read together. To be able to change this is very difficult. That's why, for thousands of years, there's been a strong practice of reading in community, whether through written word or listening to someone recite the word. There has been a strong tradition for centuries and centuries and centuries of getting together to read the word together. So we're going to get a brief overview of what that has looked like throughout the Bible in this video. I was reading the Bible, which, you know, is kind of hard to do, but I came across this verse that says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. 
Yeah, this is in Paul's letter to Timothy, who's a young pastor, and he's telling him about ways that he can keep his church community engaged with Scripture. Okay, so preaching the Bible I get, teaching from the Bible I get that too, but what about this reading Scripture together thing? Is that something I'm supposed to care about? Why did Paul think it was so important? Oh man, for Paul, this was a really significant practice for the people of God. Think all the way back to Mount Sinai, where the Israelites were just rescued from Egypt. They're no longer slaves, and they need a new identity, a new story to live by. And so Moses, he gathers the people together, and he reads the scriptures aloud. He reminds them of where they came from, who they are, and the new future that they're called to live for. This was the first public reading of scripture in the Bible. Yeah, and it didn't stop there. When the people finally got into the land, they did it again. Joshua pulled the people together, and they all listened to the scriptures read aloud so they could remember where they came from and how they could keep living as a part of this new story. So this is something they did all the time then? Well, actually, no. After Joshua died, we don't have any more stories of the people coming together to hear God's word. Instead, the people forgot their story and a whole generation arose that didn't know their God or what God had done for them. But then, centuries later, a king named Josiah rediscovered the scriptures, and he was so excited that he called Israel to begin this practice once again. It sparked a renewal movement. That is, until the people forgot once more, and they ended up in exile. And so this is why, when Ezra and Nehemiah came back from the exile, they needed to remind the people who they are and how they are to live. So this is a powerful practice. Yeah, in fact, reading scripture together became a core part of Jewish life. It was done every week as they gathered in synagogue. Jesus himself participated in this practice. He even launched his mission during the weekly reading of the scriptures. He read from the scroll of Isaiah, and then he told everyone these words were about him. And that brings us all the way back to the early church where Paul told Timothy to keep this practice going to immerse the whole community in the story of the scriptures. Okay, but here's the thing. Most people back then didn't know how to read, so they had to do it publicly. But I can read the Bible by myself. Yeah, and you should totally do that. But don't underestimate the power of this ancient practice. Reading the Bible by yourself can be hard. It can be easy to get distracted. But something happens when you hear God's word read aloud and when you're with other people. And besides, it's really easy. You don't need anyone to preach or teach. You just need to listen to the scriptures and then talk about what you've heard. This is what God's people have always done when they enter into new and uncertain times. They remember their story and who they are through the public reading of the scriptures. So I want to give your attention to one particular passage in Colossians 4 that kind of explains this process. We'll just, I'm just going to read this pretty quickly. But now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Paul's instructions to the church at the end of his letter to the Colossians was to read this letter aloud. This was normal practice for the church. They got together and whenever they were together, they read the Bible together. We see Jesus doing this. We see Moses doing this. We see a tradition throughout the Bible's history, people getting together to read God's word. We are not simply called to private time with Jesus. We are called to communion with Jesus as the church. The task of transformation takes place not through the incredible efforts of individuals, but by the word working on people as they confess to one another. So now we've talked about it a little bit. You, you uh, maybe see the need a little bit, right? But let's get down to doing it. 
I think there are several things that can hinder us uh, from reading the Word. All right, and I'm going to talk about three, but I think boil it down to one. Okay, one of those can be just the the super easy struggle to have, and I've had this struggle whenever I was in my home church uh, as a teen all the way up through college, and that's that I wanted to understand the, more, the word more. I wanted to read alongside other people, but I didn't know what steps to take to be able to do that. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know who to ask. Whatever. That was me. All right, that might be your thing today, and I'll address that at the end. Um, another thing I think is time. If you uh, ask somebody how their week has gone, then the typical response is going to be, oh, it's just been busy. I'm tired. It's just busy. Uh, well, uh, hey, did you do this this week? Oh, I just I haven't had time. All right, I have a shocking um, revelation for you guys. All right, are you ready? This is going to be big. We are all given the exact same amount of time during the week. We all have 168 hours. Full week. Every single one. None of you have less. None of you have more. We all have 168 hours. So we all have the same amount of time to work with. And as my friend Connor tells me pretty often whenever I'm not willing to go hang out with him, he says, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we make time for what we care about. kind of silly, but it's true, right? If we care about something enough, we're going to make time for it. For me, uh, this is kind of one of those, like I've, I've tried to get out of the practice of saying I, I don't have time for something and to say I didn't make time to do it because that's more true. I wanted to go to a Mumford & Sons concert um, a year ago, so I bought tickets like six months in advance uh, to see them in Indi- Indianapolis and really enjoy the band. So excited about seeing them. It was at the Pacers Stadium, though, um, which is a huge, huge venue. Venue, And if you know anything about listening to live music, it's way better to hear it in a very personal way, right? Just Even if it's just people playing in a room, like playing guitar and singing, that's, that's a pretty fun way to hear it. Uh, it's less fun whenever it's like over massive speakers and a giant stadium. It's still fun, but not as nice. Um, so I found out that every single town that they went to on their tour they would go to a record shop and play a show for like 100 people. And I was like, wow, to see Mumford & Sons play in a record shop would be incredible. So I found out that the Indie Star had released this article about where they're going to have these tickets. Um, and it was at this record shop in Indy. And they were going to give them away the Saturday morning of the concert um, to the first 10 people in line. And I was like, okay. I'm going to call and see how many people are in line. And it was like six at the time, right? And that's like the day before, like over 24 hours before or something like that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to throw my sleeping bag in the car. And after, after school, um, I might head to Indy and then spend the night. Um, so I one more time called to make sure that they, they still had the tickets. There weren't more than 10 people in line. And they said they had given them away. But the point of the story is, I was willing to give up an entire night of sleep and stay out in the cold in March all night so that I could go get these tickets. All right? But at the exact same time, I would probably have told you, oh, yeah, I, I haven't had time to read the Bible this past week. You see the incongruity? <laughs> we have time. We make time for the things that we care about. So doing it 
So knowing that it's a good thing and doing it are totally different, right? Time can get in our way. The fear of not knowing what to do can get in our way. But really, what it all comes back to is sin. It comes down to pride. Something about reading the Bible with other people is that it necessarily makes you accountable. So a good way to understand this is Cherish and I uh, are, have been preparing the parsonage. So Cherish isn't living there yet. I'm the only one living there. Uh, but I moved in about a month ago. We're going to get married on March 21st. Um, and there's a lot, there was a lot to be done. We wanted to paint the walls. We wanted to redo the floors. We wanted to do a lot of things. So my parent, parents came into town, and they worked on the house, and we got a lot done. Um, and after that point, I was like, we got so much done. We're, we're great. And Cherish is like, oh, I'd love to get this done this week. And I'm like, hmm, it'll get done. It'll get done. Uh, and she, she kind of pressed a little bit further. <laughs> and eventually I started doing some things, right? Uh, ultimately, I wanted to work on my own timeline. Cherish, don't worry about it. You just do your own thing. I'll do my own thing. Uh, and it'll get done. And ultimately, it probably would not get done if it was just me, <laughs> like, wanting to do my own thing. But because Cherish had some, she, she kind of put some pressure on me, wanted me to get things done, I, like, actually took the initiative to get those things done that I wouldn't have done otherwise. And whenever we read the Bible with other people, we open ourselves up to accountability, which is typically unwelcome. But whenever we know how important something is, then we know that we need accountability. We need someone to make sure that we are going to be faithful to the task, right? So reading the Bible together helps us do that. Daniel reminded us, uh, or he told us about the inspiration of Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed. What this is referring to is the Spirit working through the word. And we know that we are totally dependent on the Spirit giving us understanding of the word. Not, Daniel told us not, not just anybody can pick up a Bible and know what God means, right? The Holy Spirit has to reveal that to them. So it's only by the power of the Spirit that we understand the word. But on top of that, I want us to look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. So whenever we read the word, we're not learning man's wisdom. We're learning what the Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit transforms our mind, changes our thinking through the power of the word. But in Galatians 6, we learn that the word's transformation also changes the way that we relate to other people. When we have the mind of Christ through the word's transformation then we are to fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love our neighbors as, our, as ourselves. The word changes us. It makes us work, live differently with other people, right? So Galatians 6, chapters, or Galatians 6, verses 2 and 3 say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, When he is nothing, he deceives himself. In order to obey Jesus, apparently we need others to labor with us. Apparently obeying Jesus comes hand in hand with being with other people. It's not a thing that we just live out on our own. 
And whenever we think that we can just live it out on our own, and we can do our own thing, and we're going to take care of ourselves and pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we're actually giving into pride. And we think that we're actually better than what we are. The Bible says that if we think ourselves to be something, then we are nothing. We're giving into the sin of pride. So whenever we create accountability, whenever we let people in on what we're doing, we lower our pride. We're giving a check to our pride. It's not just us. We're not enough. We need other people. We're letting other people in. So the problem that pride is, is that it's sin. It's not just like a, a quality defect in your personality. Oh, some people are humble. I'm just prideful. And it's, it's okay. Everybody's different. Um, that's not the case. It's a sin. It's something that every single person has to work through. Because guess what? We're all born looking out for number one. We all care about ourselves more than the person next to us. And to fulfill the law of Christ is to love our neighbor. And we cannot love our neighbor without the spirits transforming us to do so. And apparently, part of this is leaning on the community of believers that God has given us in order to do that. And that happens by confessing our sins. Pride keeps us from confessing our sins. And the problem with that is that sin creates an open wound. It's like receiving a mortal stab in ourselves. Like we have been stabbed by a knife and we are mortally wounded. And rather than going to other people, this is our typical response. We're like, well, I'll just put a Band-Aid on it and it'll work. Like, I can push through this. It's fine. I'll be fine. Um, Nobody has to know about it. It's just a stab, right? So then we just live our life and we're like, ah, it'll be fine. All the while, it's infected. There's pus coming out of it. It's clearly getting worse and worse and going to result in our death, right? Sin creates death. Sin brings about death. And whenever we fail to confess our sins one to another, we can't be healed of our sin. Now, that's I'm not saying this to say, if you don't confess your sin, then you are going to go to hell because every unconfessed sin causes you to go to hell. If you have trusted in Jesus, your blood, the blood of Christ has covered you and your, your debt is forgiven. But you are going to live a very sad life if you don't confess your sin. You're not going to be fill, filled with the joy of Christ. You're not going to live in flourishing unless you confess your sin. Jesus is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has paid for your sin. We just have to confess it. So this is what happened in the very first story. Is you have Adam and Eve, given this perfect world, they sin against God, and what is their first reaction? It's shame and it's fear. They go against what God has said, and they hide themselves. They cower in fear. They're hiding under branches as if God isn't going to be able to find them. And God finds them. He knows what's going on the entire time. The next time that we have somebody sin in the Bible, we have Cain. Cain is jealous of his brother. And the the way that God says it is, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you have to rule over it. So I want you to imagine that you are going to this cabin in the woods with a realtor, and you're thinking about buying this cabin, all right? 
which I think a cabin in the woods sounds pretty cool. This one's not as cool. There's a bear that lives just outside the back door. Um, however, you decide to buy this anyway because you're like, I don't know, I just want, really want a cabin in the woods. This is a pretty good price. They said that the bear's not going to get in as long as I don't let it in. You're like, okay, great. So this is the exact image that Cain is given, that there is a bear just outside the back door. Don't let him in. All right? The problem is that if you've been around Christians very long or if you are a Christian, you know that Christians still sin. Right? Its desire is for you, and it's going to absolutely destroy you. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain lets the bear in, and it tears him apart. And he's, he's killed his brother out of jealousy. He kills his brother. And then God confronts him and says, what have you done? Your, blo- your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know what's going on. I didn't do anything. He, he can't own up to his own sin. He's still in his pride. He's still covering it up because pride gives us this facade of protection. We think that we've got it under control. Oh, we're good. All the while, things are broken in the relationship with God. There's something that's keeping us from our relationship with God. We let the bear in whenever we sin. And it tears us apart and we are broken and in need of help. And rather than going to God and saying, I have sinned and I've failed. And rather than going to people in the church and saying, I have failed in this way and I need help. We put on a brave face and we say, oh, I'm just tired this week. There's nothing wrong with me. It was just, just a, it was a long week. Uh, I'm just, it's just been busy. And we don't talk about what's really wrong. God has given us the community of believers that we have, our church. We're here for each other because we can't do this alone. And pride flies in the face of what we're here for. In both the story of Adam and Eve and in the story of Cain and Abel, we see a similar ending. God is fully aware of what's going on. You're not hiding anything from God. You can't hide your sin, you can't fix it, but luckily, God has always known about your sin. You have not hidden it from him, he's seen it all, and you you know what he did in spite of all of this, in spite of knowing that you have willfully gone against him. While we were still dead in our sins, he sent his son to bear the weight of it all. He was bruised for our iniquities, He was pierced for our sins. The punishment of all of us that we deserved was laid upon him and he died in our place for our sins. So while you're sitting there groveling in your sins, while I am sitting groveling in my sins and I'm like, I've got this figured out, Jesus has paid for it. And he doesn't want you to live in fear. He doesn't want you to live in defeat. He doesn't want you to live in a way that you're like, ah, I've got this all figured out and I don't need anybody. All the while, you're broken on the inside and you've got this festering wound. He's paid for it. He's forgiven you. And you need your brother and sister that's sitting next to you to remind you that you are forgiven. Jesus has forgiven your sin. Whenever we confess to one another, it's not because we want you to just go through the motions of doing things. It's because whenever you confess to your brother or sister, 
They remind you that you are forgiven by Jesus. It's the reminder of the gospel. That's the way that God intends for us to work. It's not in a just me and God relationship and we're just doing our own thing and it doesn't matter what everybody else does. It's we live in community. We confess our sins. We read together. Now, how can we live in this way that we are not going to just live um, where it's just me and God and we're just doing our own thing and it doesn't matter what everybody else does? It happens through reading in community. So you might be saying, okay, I admit, I sin, which is a good step because you're not, even if you say you're not sinning, you do. You do sin. All right? So maybe you're there. Say, I, I've sinned. I do sin. It's a problem that I have. I am a sinner. All right? That's the first step. But what do I do now? What am I supposed to do about this? Sin keeps us from the true fellowship around the word with others in the church. What can I do about it? Telling others about your sin is the exact opposite of pride. It flies in the face of pride. Pride says, I've got it all figured out. Confession says, I need your help. Pride hurts you while disguised as protection. Confession heals you by making you vulnerable. Pride says, I'm enough. But confession says, Jesus is enough. Pride says, I can figure this out alone. I've got this figured out. Confession says, I need church. Reading, with, reading the Bible with others counteracts our sins by, because we share our sins and we produce accountability for reading. You cannot be affected by God in a vertical way, all right? So we've got this vertical relationship with God. We've got a horizontal relationship with other people. You can't be affected vertically without being affected horizontally. Whenever you are changed by God, it affects what you do with others. So whenever you are interacting with the Word week by week, day by day, and you are learning from God, God is convicting you of sin, and He's changing you from the inside out, it affects your relationship with other people. But if you're not giving your time to the Word, if you're not reading with other people, then you're not going to be affected this way and you're definitely not going to be affected this way. So we've got to apply ourselves to the reading of God's Word together. So we have a lot of groups that meet for the purpose of seeing how the Word applies to a particular area of life or studies a part of the Bible. We just finished reading about John reading through the writings of John. If you joined us in the, the Bible app uh, through that reading plan, and that was a really, really cool experience. But we have to go above that because just reading the Bible together, just attending a group is not going to do it. And I want you to add this question to your arsenal of questions that actually get down to like real talk that's not just about the weather or the latest sports game or something. All right? So I want you to to ask this question. What has God been teaching you through his word lately? What has God been teaching you through his word lately? One more time. What has God been teaching you through the word lately?
Whenever you ask that question, you're not asking, what do you know about God? And somebody's like, oh, well, I read this book about God, and it was, like I know a lot about Him, and I, I read the Bible. I went to Sunday school my whole life. That's not what you're asking. What did you learn about God lately? What have you been learning about God lately? Because that means that you're reading the Bible not for the purpose of just whatever, for completion. You're learning about it. You are reading the Bible to learn about God. And then you're trying to think, how does that affect you? So whenever you ask that question, you're producing accountability between you and that other person for actually doing that type of reading. I have been asked that question before, and I have come up to empty. All right, I've been guilty of someone saying, what has God been teaching you lately through the reading of God, through your reading? And then I say, I have not been making time to read. And you know what that spurs me to do? Read. So it's either going to lead to a really good conversation about how God's working in someone's life, or it's going to lead to someone reading the Bible. Either way, it leads to a really good thing. Ask the question, what have you been reading, or what, what has what you've been reading in Scripture taught you about God lately? It's just a great question to ask. When you do this, whenever you start doing this, it leads to confession of sins. It leads to talking about things that are going on in your life because it makes you think about what you're learning about God and how that affects you in all of your relationships. So that's my big challenge for you today. Read the Bible with other people. But don't just read the Bible to read the Bible. Let it be intentional. Ask intentional questions that lead to application. We have a lot of groups that meet here at the church. We have a Bible study for adults on Wednesday night in here. We have Alpha that meets on Wednesday nights. We have youth group that meets on Wednesday nights. We have a mom's group that meets throughout the week. We have a lot of children's programs. We have child care for a lot of the things that, a lot of the Bible studies that we have. All of these things are at your disposal to be able to learn about God and to read the Bible with other people. But it's not about just attending. It's about forming relationships where you can ask that question and you're able to really be known and to let go of that shame that you feel because of your sin. We're supposed to read the Bible in community so that we can care for each other and bear one another's burdens. When we do this, we can say with the psalmist how sweet it is when the brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. This doesn't mean that we got together and had some food. We went to El Maguey after after Sunday service. This means that we we meet together bringing the hope of Jesus. We bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another. This is all a natural byproduct of reading the Bible with other people. So let me challenge you to do that. Let's pray.